you'd like to reach for a Bible uh, next to you there, uh, we'll be in uh, the book of Romans. It's page uh, 941 uh, in, in the black uh, Bibles that are there in the chairs. 941 is the page number. Romans chapter 3. You know, we're in really what is turning into quite a long series, but that's okay. I'm being benefited myself, and we're spending some time here in Romans 3. We're, we're drawing to a close out of this chapter, and we'll move on to chapter 4 soon. But what I've been doing is going through uh, various passages that are particularly important as we are thinking about the doctrine of sonship. What does it mean to be a part of the family of God? What does it mean to be a daughter? Uh, a son of the Most High God. Reading again a few verses here out of this chapter, Romans chapter 3, uh, please follow with me now, uh, beginning here at verse uh, 24. Uh, Paul is speaking about those who have sinned, and yet he says this at verse 24, those who have sinned, who know that they are sinners, and that they are justified, Romans 3, 24, they are justified by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, this is the reading of God's holy word. Uh, join me within, uh, with me now in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your blessing upon the word of God. This is your word. Uh, bring it home to our hearts, we pray, and teach us, O Lord. Uh, teach us in that we'd be turned to you to give you glory and thus to uh, know what it means uh, to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve Him. Lord, come. Come by Your Holy Spirit and minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, to be adopted children of God, that is an act of God's free grace, to be adopted. That's that spiritual adoption. I've told you the story in the past that in our family, uh, our own son and daughter-in-law, uh, they have adopted a little girl. And so we can think of the legal adoption of a physical, biological nature in that sense for a, uh, a nuclear family, a, bi a biological family. But with God's spiritual family, uh, the Bible teaches that same truth, that there is a spiritual adoption of His free grace to be numbered in His family, and to be numbered in His family, and to have various privileges and responsibilities to be in the family of God. Well, in Romans chapter 3, there is no question, there is a focus here on this part of the book of Romans that we're in, there is a focus on man's desperate need. What's that desperate need? He's a sinner. He's a sinner. Man is a sinner. He cannot save himself. How is he ever to be welcomed then into the family of God? How can he be welcomed into the family of God and thus have to pass over him uh, the consequences of his sin, consequences of, uh, like death and condemnation and eternal, um, eternal separation from God in hell? Well, how will he ever be welcomed into God's family in light of his circumstances of being a sinner? 
That is largely the focus we have been giving uh, in these lessons over the last probably six, seven, eight um, sermons that we've had now. But I want to begin here with a story. You know about this. Uh, you know that when we, in our own country, uh, around the turn of the previous century, late 1800s or so, uh, we had what we called then, of course, the, part of the Industrial Revolution happening before that, but certainly part of the Western expansion taking place, 18, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, uh, even during the period of the Civil War. But the Western expansion, uh, those families and households that would move from the mid-Atlantic or the Eastern seaboard and make their way to the West. Well, oftentimes, yes, they'd be on horseback. But many, many times, uh, it, was, it was to walk across this country. They were making their way to walk across. Uh, times were harsh. Times were tough. But as the story goes, they always feared making their way across the country. They always feared the plain states, the central U.S. Because there would be that hip high, roughly hip height, tall, dry grass. And those prairies were to be feared. Why were they to be feared? Because that grass was so dry, right? And it was the fear of a plains fire, a prairie fire. It would be a raging fire. And as the stories are told to us and the stories that are handed down, uh, these that would make their way, make their journey across the states, they would see in the distance those black, those dark billowing clouds, right? And then there would be the wind that would whip up. And they would know that you get that combination of seeing that, that, that billowing dark cloud in the distance and that wind whipping up that there was a raging fire likely heading toward them. There's no place to hide, no place to run. Think of the prairie plains now. No, no tree to climb. It's the prairie. So we're told that, you know, in the wisdom of things, they would start a fire themselves, right? Maybe you know that story. They would start a fire themselves and, and burn an area near to them, but burn this area and make sure it would be burned before the raging fire would, would come to them. And so having a burned area, they would then step into that area because where fire has passed, right? Where fire, where, where, what's been burned, there's no fuel. There's no fuel to burn. And so indeed, the only way they would escape such raging fire, such judgment coming their way, would be to burn this area. And there where it's already burned, it would be a safe place to stand, a safe place to hover and to be together. And that fire coming their way would pass over them, pass beside them. But indeed, they would escape with safety. And that is what Paul is talking about here in these verses. We need a place that's already been burned. <laughs> we need a place that we can stand there where that fire has already raged, this fire of judgment, this fire, indeed, where God has righteously poured out, poured out the rage of what we deserve. But that rage, that righteous anger, if I may say it that way, the wrath of God that we're going to reference here in a moment, it's already been poured out. And that's the gospel. The gospel that Jesus is the one who is the burned over area. And the sinners who come and find refuge there with Jesus because he has suffered 
Indeed, they will be spiritually safe. That's our lesson here tonight. This place of safety with what Jesus Christ has done. Two lessons to talk about this evening. Two lessons to bring to our attention. We see that the Father, God the Father, the Father and the Son, they're working together to accomplish this safe place of a refuge. They're working together to accomplish this safe place. And then in just a moment, we'll look at three, impor- three important words. They're kind of, as I might say, they're kind of 50 cent words. They're, 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 they're words that have some price to them. They're, maybe they're $5 words. We're going to look at three important words in this passage. But it's all with a view that we learn something more about this place of safety, this place where we can be spiritually kept and secure. First, the Father and the Son working together to provide this place of safety. Look at verse 21. Once again, just go back up a couple of verses at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That God's righteousness has been manifested. Look at verse 22. There's this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I'm only underscoring the fact that God is the one spoken here, providing, manifesting, showing, demonstrating God, and it's speaking of the Father. But at verse 25, we have the reference that God put forward Jesus. So now, 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 we, have the, now we have the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ brought into these verses. God put him forward, the him, Jesus, put Jesus forward. And indeed, he is the one who is our redeemer. Uh, Again, at verse 26, to show his righteousness. It's the father showing his righteousness through his son. And then at the very end, verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier. Just and the justifier. The father and the son working together. He is just and he is the justifier. The father through his son, the justifier through his son. Now, why bring this up? Why bring this matter of the Father and the Son working together to provide this place of refuge and security and safety? Why bring the matter up that they're working together? Because it's often easy to think of the Father being the one who's distant from the world. We've heard the old stories before that that God is likened unto a clockmaker. He makes the clock and then delivers the product But he himself is distanced from that. That's how he made the world. Like the world is a clock, he made the world, and then he himself removed himself and is distant from the world. We can just think of the pure matter of distance. Why do we want to keep them together as the passage does for us? We can think of the Father sometimes misleadingly, wrongly, as disinterested. He's doing other things. That salvation is an afterthought. Now, I know it sounds strange to think of this, but some people have these ideas that he's altogether distant. He's altogether maybe disinterested. He's preoccupied with other things. He's running the world. He's running the universe and so on and so forth. But here's one that's probably closer to home. More significantly, significantly, sometimes there are views that would teach that the father must be won over to accept the son's sacrifice for sin that the Father must be won over. And that's the thought that perhaps there are opposing, opposing plans going on. The Father has His plan, and the Son has His plan. 
or that the father sent his son, but something happened. Something got out of hand. The father sent the son, but things got out of hand in the city of Jerusalem. The religious leaders were stirred up. The Jews themselves were stirred up. He went to go see Caiaphas, he, Jesus. He went to go see uh, Herod and Pilate. Things just got out of hand. And they had different plans going on. Or even more, here's another one, even more. Maybe the father became cruel. Cross purposes again, no pun intended there. <laughs> Thought about that today. No, don't say cross purposes, Mark, they'll mislead people. <laughs> but you know, maybe, maybe they're working across the grain at each other. And that the father all of a sudden turned cruel to send his son to the cross. But you don't have that language here. The father and the son is working together. In fact, to expand the wider teaching of the Bible, Jesus will lift out, if I may say it that way, Jesus will make use of the Old Testament. So the first part of the Bible, Jesus turns back to the first part of the Old Testament, and he takes some of those verses out of the Old Testament and he applies them to himself. Jesus does. And he'll say things like this in his earthly ministry. Behold, I have come to do the will of God. He'll actually use the words, I'm here to do the will of, the, of him who sent me. I've come to do your will, O God. Well, that's, that's a verse out of Psalm 40. And so Jesus is taking these promises of God's plan to fulfill the Father's will, and he takes them to himself. I've come to do your will, O God. He will say in John chapter 10, the Father and I are one. There's working together. The Father and I are one. In John chapter 17, he's going to pray to his father and he'll have these words, Father, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You gave me this work, Father, and I've glorified you. It's the father and the son working together. And how does this relate to the doctrine of adoption? How does this have a bearing on sonship? Again, we must be solid in our view of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our God works in that, that, that harmonious way to win our salvation. But you see, sometimes we can think, even as children of God, even as children of God, sometimes we can think this, the Son, the Son of God, the Son relates and the Father tolerates. Sometimes we can have this view. The son understands and the father is standing over. The son has understanding about my life, but the father, he's standing over, arms crossed, tapping his foot, maybe even with a stick, and he's impatiently aiming to keep us in line. No. The father and the son work together for that provision, for that place of eternal security, that place of refuge, that place of safety, that place where there is that burned over area in which we stand in their security when that raging fire is passing by. I wanted to stress these points because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united, one, and then carrying out the work of salvation, doing so harmoniously, the Father is not having to reluctantly give grace, reluctantly give something. No, the Father purposes through His Son to bring that salvation to us. 
Now the important words. Let's look at the important words. There are three of them here. Redemption, propitiation, and demonstration. Redemption. Let's go back here to verse 25. Whom, speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward. Now watch this word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Or sorry, propitiation. By his blood to be received by faith. Look at verse 24. Sorry, my mistake. I went ahead one verse. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption. Let's take that word first before propitiation. The word redemption. That's a marketplace word. That is a marketplace word. It's ordinarily used in the market uh, where there'd be hired hands sold. They'd be purchased. A hired hand would be purchased and that hired hand then would be employed. Certainly in the Mediterranean world, we think of slavery. And the idea is to buy a slave, to buy a hired hand. That is to say, there would be a purchase made. But then there would be those who would want to redeem their purchase, redeem their purchase. And that is to say, maybe to sell and then to buy back, to sell one and to buy back another. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, the old British scholar, says this, the act of buying a slave out of bondage is to redeem that person and to set him or her free. And in multiple places in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Psalms, it's frequently used about Israel herself as a nation to be set free from her captivity, to be redeemed, to be set free, purchased and set free, to be liberated, whether it be from Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. And so what is this Romans 3.24 word here, redemption, What's the meaning then for us? Paul is applying it to us in our sinful condition. To be purchased, to be redeemed, to be bought. And it's the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, we've been redeemed, we've been delivered from the bondage of sin. Verse 23, all have sinned, now verse 24. All have sinned and we are justified by his grace as a gift through, through the redemption of Christ. He shed his blood. He paid the price to rescue us, to deliver us, to purchase us out of slavery to sin, to purchase us and now to belong to him. So maybe in these days in your life, maybe in these days in your life, you're faced with guilt. Maybe you're faced with hopelessness. Maybe you are sensing, you know that you're chained to sin. Maybe you have fear before your eyes, fear of just condemnation. Maybe there's insecurity, living in hopelessness, hoping somehow in that insecurity that you're gonna make it to heaven when you die. We are unable to liberate ourselves. We are in bondage to sin. We've covered those lessons. But Christ is the one who makes the just payment for sin, which the Father gladly accepts. His death is my death. His payment is my payment. His just suffering at the cross is my suffering. Just in the sense that he had to make payment for sin to fulfill righteousness. This is what Jesus has done. Redemption. He makes the purchase. He pays the price with his own body at Calvary's cross when he was crucified. Now remember, Jesus didn't say, Jesus didn't say there on the cross, I did my part, now you finish it, right? 
He didn't say, I am finished, meaning that he's tired and he gave up. But what did he say? He said, it is finished. That means God accepts his payment for sin. Implication, are you trusting Christ? Are you trusting Christ for his payment? Why his payment? Because he's the spotless lamb. He's undefiled. He's the sinless one. He's the one who gave himself at Calvary's cross. He's the only place of safety of that salvation where that fire of judgment has been poured out on him. Are you standing in that place where there's grace? Grace in that sense that you're in Christ, you're trusting in him. Next word, propitiation. He's redeemed us, but now propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy, it means to appease, it means to placate. So what does this imply? It implies that God has anger against sin. He is angry against sin. It also implies God is angry against the sinner. And that's why we have the lesson about God and sinners must be reconciled. Sinners must be brought into a place to be reconciled with God. Listen to Romans chapter 5, just a couple of more chapters over. Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. 5.9, look at 5.9. We have been justified by his blood and much more. We shall be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. Verse 10, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He is the propitiation. He is the one to satisfy justice. He is the one to appease God, to turn the anger away. Now, indeed, that is not a popular subject this, these days, is it? To think of God being angry at sinners. Psalm 7, he's angry with the sinner all day long. It's not popular to be thinking about God's righteous anger. It's not uncontrolled. It's not unpredictable. Uh, that's to say, sin reaches its height, sin reaches its degradation, sin reaches its magnitude, and God must justly act. And so to justly act is to pour out his wrath upon sin. That's all in Romans chapter 1 as well. Though it's not popular, it is needful to rightly understand the gospel. And it's so interesting then that we get a word picture, a vivid depiction, a, a vivid word picture for this word propitiate. It's only translated this way one time, but it gives us a vividness about it. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, it's translated the same word we're talking about here in Romans 3. Back in Hebrews 9, it's translated mercy seat. That's a vivid picture for us. What does that mean? In, in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer there is discussing the golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, right? That golden box with its golden lid, the top, the lid top, where two cherubim would be faced one, in, one to another, looking together, but that top part is called the mercy seat. It's called the propitiation. It's called the place of mercy. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into that holy of holy place and he would sprinkle 
the blood of the sacrificial lamb, he'd sprinkle some of that blood there on the top of the golden box or the ark. And it would be a place where mercy is demonstrated, where mercy is demonstrated. And because of shed blood being sprinkled there, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's turned away. A vivid picture for us. That's all in the book of Leviticus. Now, the point of Paul in Romans 3, not only is Jesus our redemption, the one to make the purchase and to liberate us and to bring us to himself, to redeem us to himself. We've been bought with a price. But he's also the one to propitiate that by his shed blood, God, God's anger, God's righteous and just anger against sin is turned away. And here is where Paul is driving home. We don't have the word here in front of us, but I'm going to use it anyway. Paul is driving home the doctrine of substitution. Do you remember the story when Jesus was crucified? And the Jews cried out there in Jerusalem, crucify him, crucify him. Remember that, remember that story, that scene. Pilate is asking, to whom should I let go? To whom should I release? Because it was the custom, we're told from Matthew, we're told by the gospel writers, it was the custom of the Jews to let a prisoner go at the time of the Passover. Release to us Barabbas. Barabbas, release Barabbas. Crucify him. Remember that scene? Remember that scene? If there's any story that just poignantly just gets us, if there's any story about substitution. Release to us Barabbas. Crucify him. Now we don't know if Barabbas ever, ever came to saving faith. But it's illustrative. It, it depicts for us the matter of substitution. Jesus took the place of that criminal. And you know what the Holy Spirit is doing, right? The Holy Spirit, by those scenes in Matthew and in Luke and John and Mark, those scenes are being depicted for us because we're the criminals. We're the ones to be condemned. We're the ones to endure in those days, the Mediterranean era, the Roman crucifixion. The most heinous of those crimes, you'd be crucified. We're the ones to be crucified. Barabbas, the human, the mere human, the creature of God, who is the criminal, the one who is broken in his sin, ruined in his sin. Even as those two thieves, remember the two thieves crucified on both sides of Jesus saying, this man is innocent, speaking of Jesus. This man is innocent. We're deserving of this. But Barabbas is released. Here is the substitute in that story. Here is Jesus as the substitute. So friends, tonight, is he your substitute? Is, it, is, it, is the mercy of God upon the top of the golden box of the Ark of the Covenant where those cherubim are placed, is the spilling of blood mercy for you tonight? Do you know that? Because this is the propitiation. He died, Jesus died in our place and he died for our sins. The death he died was our death. And he did this in order to turn away God's anger that we might never die. How do we receive this gift? Paul tells us, by faith, 
Is Christ yours tonight? Do you know beyond a shadow that you're standing in this place where the wrath has been poured out? That's the the vivid imagery for us tonight. We think about this prairie fire, right? There must be a place that's already been burned if you want to be spared. If you want life, you must enter the place where there's been death. And that's why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow. Pick up his cross. Die to self. Go to that place where death is taking place. Because this is God's provision where the payment of sin has been been made for us. God gave himself to save us from his wrath, and that's propitiation. One last word, demonstration, demonstration. Now, in the translation that we're using here, I'm using tonight, we don't see the word demonstration, but some of the other translations have that word demonstration. But if you look down at verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? By faith. Here's now our word. This was to show, this was to demonstrate. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness at the end of verse 25 there, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This declaration that we're talking about tonight, this place of refuge, this place of safety and security, this place where there's something has been burned already and thus there's now a procurement, a purchase for us, a place of safety for us. This is a demonstration that Paul is saying. What is it demonstrating? It shows that our God remained true, remained true to his character. He remained faithful. He remained consistent. That's what it shows. He's true to his character. He's faithful in his person, his being. His very nature can be relied upon. How so? Here's the point now. Back in the Old Testament times, back in the days of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, David, the kings, back in the Old Testament, people obviously had sinned. Well, okay, they'd sinned. That's good good enough. They'd sinned. But the thought is maybe God wasn't being faithful to who he is and his nature. Back then, his passing over of those former sins, those sins of the Old Testament people, maybe, the thought is, maybe he was showing that he's unreliable. He's not really true after all. He's not faithful in his righteousness after all. Maybe he's letting bygones be bygones. Maybe those past sins, he's merely winking at them. But Paul is reminding us, not in your life, not so fast. God is patiently, as it says here, forbearing, bearing along with. He passed over the sins of our forefathers He passed over the sins of our foremothers. All back there in the Old Testament, he was showing his forbearance. He was not yet judging officially, formally, sin. 
until the proper time. And that's Paul's point. He had planned that the full penalty for the sins back then would in proper time be dealt with in His Son, the Lord Jesus. At the proper time, God sent forth His Son to be the sin bearer. That's 1 Peter. Listen to 1 Peter. You were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Through him, we are believers in God. And that's why Paul will end up this section by saying, God is just and he's the justifier. The Lord Jesus, by his substitutionary death, is the sinless, pure, holy sacrifice. And he is the righteous ground upon which our God pardons our sins. He's the death payment. He reconciles us to God. He vindicates us. And here where judgment for sin is paid for, looking back on previous Old Testament, different people back there, those generations, that same judgment, good for them, is good for us. God is pleased with the payment of His Son for our sin, whether it be in the past or now here in the present. I stop here. How are you handling the raging fire. Have you moved into the burned area? That raging fire will pass over you if your trust is Jesus Christ. There's safety where the fire has already burned. Doesn't that increase your confidence to walk day by day with your Father and your King, your Lord, loving Him, serving Him, walking with Him in His commandments? A cherishing and savoring who he is. Think even here in this last point real quick. In his divine forbearance, he was passing over in his divine... For That's our patient God. That's our patient God with us. And he's patient with us because Jesus has made the payment. Is your rest, your hope, your confidence in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? He can be by faith. Give him your life. Give him your heart. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would powerfully make known to us that Jesus is Lord and Savior. He has uh, brought the victory. He who is the conquering king has conquered sin, death, hell, judgment, all condemnation. And Father, what, what a blessing, what, what a blessing it is to know this is your good gift to us, the gift received by faith. We thank you, Lord Christ, for your everlasting love. That love that um, called you forth in obedience unto your Father. That love that where you went to Calvary's cross. That love being buried in the tomb. That love of being raised on the third day. That love where you have satisfied the Father's righteous anger and turned away wrath. That love that is ours, O oh Lord. We praise your holy name and we give you thanks. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.